Hi, everybody. This is Rick Manning, President of Americans for Limited Government. Thank you for joining me today. I um, want to talk about Hunter Biden, the Hunter Biden investigation, which the new uh, Republican leadership in Congress is looking to pursue. I'll start by showing you this clip from uh, uh, the person who's likely to become the House Oversight Committee Chairman, James Comer. Uh, this is a short one, so stay with it. Today, we're going to provide you with something that you all aren't used to. Uh, with respect to congressional investigations, and that's evidence. Committee Republicans have spoken with multiple whistleblowers from numerous schemes involving the Biden family, reviewed Hunter Biden's laptop, and received documents of previously, previously unknown transactions. What we found the business plans aimed at targets around the world based on influence peddling, including with people closely tied to foreign governments like China and Russia. We also found plans made to the United States where the Biden family swindled investors of hundreds of thousands of dollars, all with Joe Biden's participation and knowledge. In 2019, shortly after announcing his campaign. Okay, I'm going to go back because I don't know how much you guys can hear because I was having a hard time hearing it. Um, the key thing that uh, James Comer was saying is that uh, this is not necessarily an investigation of Hunter Biden, this is an investigation of Joe Biden. Um, in the documents that they've received and the information that uh, uh, has been uncovered, uh, the committee uh, believes that they have uh, evidence that Joe Biden directly um, was benefiting and was directing the operations. Uh, and so, and they're going to look into that. They're going to see if, that's, if that is true. Um, but they believe they've got pretty strong evidence to push forward. Um, there are some, there are some, claims, um, well, obviously the Democrats are, are claiming that, you know, this is just a political witch hunt to try to do Donald Trump's dirty work, blah, 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 Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump. All they ever want to talk about Donald Trump. They don't worry about the fact that um, Hunter Biden's laptop and Hunter Biden, the records show very clearly, and witnesses who were partners of Hunter Biden have stated very clearly that Hunter Biden has a business relationship in, with Burisma in Ukraine, a major Ukrainian company, and with multiple major Chinese companies that are directly controlled by the Communist Party of China. So that's what, you, so when you look at this, the two largest areas of our concerns from a foreign policy perspective, Hunter Biden has a direct financial interest in both, and they have, and the new incoming Republican chairman says that there have, that there is evidence that Joe Biden has been at the point has been actively involved in that those business dealings. I don't have to explain to any of you why this matters. If the president of the United States has a direct financial interest in outcomes in Ukraine and China, uh, and is involved in in uh, making money off of uh, the development of Chinese technology that's designed to kill our soldiers, um, there's got to be, you know, that's a, you know, that's so bad, it's almost indescribable. Um, and the fact is, it's been whitewashed. It's been whitewashed for more than two years. Now, one of the things, the challenges the Republicans are going to have on any of these investigations is that, we have people who are who like uh, uh, this one incoming uh, freshman. I'm going to just click here and get you the uh, little piece. 
a guy named George Santos who came out of, uh, got elected in New York. Um, and he's basically says, lawmakers should avoid focusing on hyper-partisan investigations, including a potential probe into Hunter Biden's business dealings for at least the first six months of new Congress. Now, let me be clear what that means. The political season only gets more intense the further you get along. If you delay investigations until the until August, July, August of 2023, you are in the middle of a primary season, a presidential primary season. You are in the middle of a uh, of where everything is partisan. The only way that you can get any kind of investigation that can in, can escape the, the sphere of it being nothing more than a partisan hit job is to do it now, do it early. Santos, who you know may have been may have been alive in nineteen in you know at some point in the nineteen nineties, um, young guy, but extraordinarily naive. I mean, it's a you know he doesn't want to deal with. COVID-19. He doesn't want to deal with big tech censorship. He doesn't want to deal with the FBI's raid on Mar-a-Lago. He doesn't want to deal with the Justice Department memo on outspoken parents at school board meetings. No, he doesn't want to deal with any of that stuff. He wants to give the Biden administration a free pass. Now, he's a, a Republican who was elected out of New York, and he sits there and says, I don't want to waste my time in Washington engaging in hyperpartisan issues. I want to come here to deliver results. Well, the challenge here that, that Representative Santos represents is there are going to be maximum of about 221 Republicans. That means the Republicans have, can lose four votes on any issue and lose because the Democrats are voting 100% on the other side. They voted 100% on the other side when they only had a five to six vote majority. They, they never lost, well, they lost one vote. Um, they, so they were reined in. They were disciplined. What you have here is a, is a demonstration that when you run on nothing to win elections, you get to Congress and you discover that nobody agrees on anything that you're going to do. And it makes it a darn near impossible job to manage, manage a majority, particularly a very narrow majority. And that's, a, and that's what Santos demonstrates. There's other there's other things that he demonstrates. There's there's Hunter and his and his all his glory. Um, you know, it's he wants to now he does want to work on making this country energy dependent independent, but that doesn't necessarily mean what you and I think it means, because the Democrats say they want the country to be energy independent also, but to the Democrats, energy independence means we get rid of fossil fuels. And we basically put we basically put the entire country under windmills and solar panels, um, and and pray it doesn't the sun shines, and the wind blows. That's how the Democrats want to when they talk about energy independence. So I don't know what George, what Santos means by it, but um, it's language that doesn't necessarily mean what you and I think it you, how we we might use it. Um, no, he wants to also. Um, uh, reduce, work on reducing crime across metropolitan areas, essentially it's New York City, which is interesting. But the challenge with that is when those cities 
actually go off and elect prosecutors who don't prosecute criminals and allow for criminals who are arrested get released on cashless bail and are back on the street, you're not going to be able to, the federal government has very little it can do. Congress, what's Congress going to do? Appropriate more money for police and prosecution when there's not any money, when they're not able to keep anybody in jail and they're not, and the prosecutor's unwilling to prosecute. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is people want to, while crime is a big deal and we, we can certainly go after the Justice Department's failure to, to actually uh, engage in um, legitimate prosecutions uh, on a number of issues. You know, unless we're, you know, unless he's talking about beefing up the DEA and put him in New York City, I don't know what the heck he's talking about because unless you get people in federal crimes doing stuff that you put them in federal court, what you really have is, uh, you know, that's an issue that is a state and local issue constitutionally. And, you know, while we spend a lot of time talking about it, it's more in, in terms of the Biden priorities in terms of judges and, and others who are weak on crime and basically want a turnkey system um, and the how the Justice Department is facilitating that. Um, and I don't know how you get hold the Justice Department accountable if you won't investigate them. So anyway, the Santos guy doesn't get it. And the problem is, um, all you need is four of him to basically you know, take away the capacity to legislate on anything, um, to fund any investigation. And it's a, and so it gets to be a kind of a, uh, it's a quandary in terms, it's gonna be a real problem for, the, for anybody who's speaker to be able to deal with this. Let's talk about, in terms of Hunter Biden, um, love to hear what you guys have to say about Hunter Biden. Let's see. Um, we're going to look at a couple. I've got, uh, there's, I don't know, hold on. Let me get rid of this guy. Boom. There he goes. Uh, there's more than we've seen so far, and there's more than Joe involved in the political arena. You know, I, I think that's probably true, Jim. Um, the, I think one of the great, the real scandal, I think, in, in the Hunter Biden thing, apart from all the, junk we, we're going to uncover is the fact that it has been covered up by those who are supposed to be shining a light on government. And it's been, and it's been covered up for partisan political purposes. Um, it's been covered up by our social media companies. It's been covered up by the major, by the um, media networks. And it's, and quite honestly, I have little expectation that Fox news is going to cover it. Um, with to any great degree. So as the Murdochs are moving, are, are moving to, in a pretty steady pace to try to pick up whatever audience CNN used to have. Um, but that's your, so it's kind of an interesting challenge. And there are, anytime you start digging into something like this, there's going to be a lot of bodies buried. And Given the fact that the that Hunter Biden's business partner, who spent time with the with the president when he was vice, when he was vice president and when he was private citizen in between, knows where those bodies are buried, and he told the FBI where those bodies are buried, and the FBI chose not to do anything about it because, well, you know why. 
I don't have to tell you why. Um, let's see where we are here. Uh, now let's get something done. You know, Jamie, Jamie, you're right. I mean, we have to get something done. And it's going to be challenging to get much done legislatively with a four-vote majority. Um, but we certainly can turn over the rocks to make certain that the people who are um, who have been uh, really stealing from this country um, and have been engaged in uh, have been engaged in, in abuse of power for at least the last six years are, are put under a spotlight and can be you know, and American people can decide they want to hold them accountable, but they need to be put under a spotlight at the very least. Um, term limits for House and Senate. Um, John, that's a, you know, we have term. Before the election, my, my argument was that they're going to term limit them by virtue of voting them out. But we had an interesting thing happen today. And it's, uh, and I'm just going to talk about it, use that as a, a segue to talk about it. The, the big news today is that Nancy Pelosi announced that she's not going to be the minority leader. Steny Hoyer, who has been the, the number two in the House Democrat side forever, um, he actually represents me. He's, one, he's the congressman from my district. Um, he has announced he's not going to continue in leadership. And the, uh, and the number three in the House, Jim Clyburn um, from South Carolina, has announced he's not going to continue in leadership. So what the Democrats are doing is they are essentially using this minority as an excuse, as a means to, to engage in a generational shift of who the leaders of the Democratic Party are. The interesting part is that the leaders that are coming in are significantly, believe it or not, are even more liberal than the existing ones. And but they're going to be flying under the radar because Pelosi carries baggage and they're getting. And so Pelosi, by stepping aside in terms of that, is carrying, you know, she the baggage of being able to run against Pelosi won't be there in, in two years. And so you've got a. Um, and Pelosi right now, Pelosi and Hoyer have said there's and Clyburn are all going to be in the House. They're not going to retire. Um, there is a persistent rumor in D.C., that um, Nancy Pelosi hopes to be named to be the ambassador to Italy. Um, few, about six months ago, she made a trip to Italy, that you know, kind of touching bases with all the with all the key people in Italy, um, under the guise, you know, of doing something as speaker. Um, interestingly, um, somebody I know who was there told me that they uh, that the most interesting thing was. Nancy Pelosi, nobody knew the heck she was. And she was there at the same time as uh, an opera singer who everybody did know. And so Nancy Pelosi kind of was walking around completely being ignored and you know, with no, given no uh, shine. And the, and the opera singer uh, was being, you know, hounded and mobbed by people. So it's kind of like here if, um, you know, if uh, let's say Kevin McCarthy was wandering around given in any anywhere in America and he had uh, and Taylor Swift was there at the same time. Uh, the fans would flock Taylor Swift, the mobs would be around Taylor Swift and Kevin McCarthy um, 
would have to shake it off. So that's a, um, so there has been a transformational shift. We'll talk more about what that means, but it's a, uh, but it is something that matters um, because the Democrats are, have the person who they're, who's been anointed to be their leader, Hakeem Jeffries, is from New York City. Um, it's obviously a shift from West Coast to East Coast. Um, and it's a, and he is a, you know, he's been touted as an up and coming uh, leader in the, in the, in the, both the black community, but also the Democratic Party. And some has said he's the, he's New York's Obama, was what they would, what people would anoint him as being, because he's, he's younger and, and is a, um, and apparently is a dynamic, is a dynamic individual. I haven't met him. Um, but that's kind of what the shift is. And as you see that generational shift, so Pelosi's 82, Hoyer was 83, uh, Jeffries was elected to Congress in 2012. So he has been in Congress for 10 years. Um, and the Democrats are giving up 30, you know, 30 years plus of uh, experience, but they're trying to, they're planning for the future. You know, Pelosi's handing down her legacy and she's doing so in such a way to try to um, to make certain that the person who becomes, if the Democrats should take control of the House again, and which they will at some point, um, that the person that she's handing it down to has a learning, it gets their learning curve done in, an, in a minority environment, but a minority environment where they have the capacity to do real damage because of the narrow majority the Republicans enjoy. Um, and one where a mess up in the House by them is not fatal because they control the, the Senate and they control the presidency. So it's a low risk time for them to hand over power. And, and you know, Pelosi's, Pelosi's smart. She, she's doing this. I have to tell you, she's doing this right. Um, we were waiting for something to happen, but it never does. Martha, yeah, I can't. I agree. <laughs> it's, I, it is the most frustrating thing in the world. I feel like uh, Charlie Brown trying to kick the football with some of these investigations. You know, the, you know, the irony here is uh, we sat and we watched uh, Hillary Clinton uh, break the law on a number of occasions and never be held accountable. And we, we chased Hillary Clinton around the block for like 20 years and never, and she never got prosecuted on things which if I'd done, I would have been prosecuted. Um, and meanwhile, she goes around and say that nobody's above the law and it just drives me nuts. So hopefully, I think one thing we know is with Jim Jordan as the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, he's a, he's a bulldog, we can count on him. I, I've met with Comer's staff on, uh, on some stuff dealing with civil service um, dealing with trying to basically drain the swamp. And I, I, I really like them. I think they'll do a good job. They're very receptive to the stuff we're pushing in terms of trying to set the table. So when the Republicans elect a president in 2024 and they take uh, that president takes office in November or January 20th, 2025, when they do that, an agenda will be teed up to immediately be able to do administrative reform that will, and I use the word reform, even though it seems 
is so soft. We are going to rip their throats out if we get our way. And we're going to be pushing like crazy to set the table for that, to get the information that's needed so Congress can have ready to go plan to be able to, in the first 100 days of what's hopefully the next Republican administration in 2025, ready to go plans to defang the swamp, to rip apart the administrative state and to hold people accountable. When we know that 25% of the, of the people did not work in the Health and Human Services from March to December of 2020, um, based on a survey that was done uh, by the then Republican uh, the Secretary of HHS, we know 25% of people never checked into their computer. They never logged into their computer. Um, it's it's important we be, we get to the bottom of what really happened over the last three years in terms of the remote workforce and how many of those remote workers are actually working so we can hold them accountable. And if they aren't working, then they're not necessary. And if they're not necessary, then we, don't, we should not be paying them anymore and we should be saving the money. It's about $40 billion a year, by the way. Um, it's, it's enough to, you know, it's what Joe Biden sneezes and sends off to Ukraine, but it's 40 billion. And, you know, back in the day, 40 billion was a lot of money. And I, I still think it is. So I think we have a capacity to do some good. The Comer staff's really good on this. Uh, we'll have a lot. Of, we don't know what the committee is going to look like yet, but I anticipate there's a strong interest amongst Republicans to get on that committee in order to be able to, uh, this is government reform and oversight to be able to go after a lot of the abuses of power that have existed. And so while that used to be a committee that was kind of a freshman come in and they kind of figure out what's going on, they find the bathrooms and then they move off to another committee uh, that has real power. Um, from what I've been told, there's a lot of competition amongst House members, House Republicans to get on that committee so they can be part of the solution of holding the administrative state accountable for the abuses of power and also cutting the size and scope of government. So it's good news. We'll see what happens with that committee. We know that Jim Jordan will be a bulldog. And I hope that Comer will be up to the task. And talking to Jordan, Jordan believes he is. And I trust Jim on that. Um, Uniparty total control. You know, I'm going to address this because I, I think it's important that we, we answer this question. Yes, there is uniparty. Okay, first of all, let's let's just accept that fact. But within that, we have a capacity to to force to some small extent in this because of the the narrowness of the majority. We have people like the, Mr. Santos that we talked about who is um, apparently doesn't want to do anything um, that might cause Democrats in New York to feel uncomfortable. So he's you know, going to be a relatively useless member. But and with the narrowness of the majority, you know, you only need four of those useless members to be to be out of power. So there's going to be some restrictions of what can be done in these next two years because of that. But when you have the difference of Jim Jordan is Jim Jordan is the Judiciary Committee chair and Jerry Nadler is the Judiciary Committee chair. 
you have a real difference. And we have to have that we've seen the power of the House of Representatives with the subpoena power. Because in the House, you don't have to get the Democrats, the other party, to agree on subpoenas. That's the reality. You do not have to get them to agree on subpoenas. So given that, Jim Jordan, as long as he has the chairmanship, will be able to get you know, issue subpoenas with the majority of the vote of the committee against various entities in order to be able to bring people in front of the committee under oath to talk. And as we've seen in the Steve Bannon case, apparently uh, the U.S. attorney will prosecute those cases if somebody doesn't show up. So it's, you know, we'll see what, whether, uh, historically speaking, they don't prosecute them when they're Democrats, but that's a different story. But Jim Jordan's a bulldog, and he will fight. So yes, there is a uniparty, but occasionally you break out of that mode, and having a Jim Jordan as the, as the House Judiciary Committee chairman is the single most important thing coming out of this, out of this leadership. And with that, I, I just have to just give you some hope on that because Jordan will hold them accountable and he'll hire the staff. He won't be hiring staff that he's told to hire. He will hire the staff. And so you won't get something like the Benghazi committee where Trey Gowdy was in charge, but the staff was hired by the, uh, by the um, speaker's office and the speaker's office had absolutely no interest in getting to the bottom of Benghazi. So that was a, so this is a different, a different kind of thing. And I, I am encouraged I am encouraged by by what's what I've seen happening in terms of uh, the talk about who's going to get chair chairmanships and the like. Um, let me I'm going to go to another another subject along these lines because what's happening right now we talked about the Democrats and what they're doing. What's happening on the Republican side is Republicans had a vote inside their conference uh, on who should be speaker. And Kevin McCarthy overwhelmingly won that vote. But what's significant is 36 people didn't vote for him. And on the House floor, if four people don't vote for him on the Republican side, he doesn't get to be speaker. And so there's a lot of back and forth now over that. The challenge with those, for those guys who are sitting there saying, I don't want McCarthy to be speaker, is the answer, well, who are you going to replace him with? Who can get 218 votes because you know just like conservatives can say we're going to deny you votes liberals in the party the reason i brought you to george santos is because i want to show you that people like him exist and they're part of the equation he's 25 percent of the votes to to basically go and get a, a somebody who is against actually proceeding with investigations against doing uh, things like that, against having Jim Jordan be chairman of judiciary. So this isn't apologetic for Kevin McCarthy by any stretch. What I'm saying is there is a danger, there is a downside risk to this kind of uh, game of chicken that gets played. And what I'm encouraging members of Congress who are concerned about Kevin McCarthy, as I am, that they have a, they have to have something that they want to get out of it. 
If the answer is no McCarthy, no way, then McCarthy has no reason to negotiate with them. However, and they better hope, they better hope that he doesn't figure out how to get to 218 without them. On the other hand, if they sit there and they negotiate with him, they might be able to do something like get control, have an ability to have on rules committee to ensure that conservative amendments end up on the floor. So we get votes on issues we want to have votes on. And maybe we win some of them. And we actually push in a conservative agenda through the amendment process. You know, another thing, getting committee subcommittee chairmanships and, and another committee chairmanship. You can negotiate that with Kevin McCarthy. You, and the fact is, that's part of the part of the game. That's part of it. You can negotiate whether you know specific things you want done in terms of the budget and the like, and votes and how you want to handle different votes. You can you can negotiate. The, the House Freedom Caucus came up with uh, a rules package for the, that runs the House. You can negotiate with Kevin McCarthy and say we need this rules package, or at least we need these set of rules to make certain that the that there are reforms in the House are taken seriously, like eliminating the earmarks that Nancy Pelosi put into place. That so there's specific things that the Freedom Caucus can leverage because of their power, and and my concern is that sometimes we overplay our hand. And because somebody's going to get to 218, somebody's get to, and the only, the only thing that matters in the House of Representatives, it's only one thing that matters. Who has 218 votes? Only thing that matters. So could a Republican say, well, gee, I've got three friends who are willing to go with me and go to the Democrats and say, you know, I'm going to be speaker and my three friends are going to be chairman but we'll share power with you. Yeah, they could do that. They could do that. So there's, you know, we are, there's been a lot of talk about Donald Trump being speaker. Well, he's not going to be speaker. He can't get 218 votes for one thing, um, which is the only thing that matters once again. Um, but he also would be a terrible speaker. But from a, he's a great president, terrible speaker in the house. You have to know all the rules. You have to know all the procedures. It's not a. It's it's a, just a lot different than being president, and uh, it's much more collaborative, and much more uh, working with various constituencies to get stuff done. But, and you have to know the body, and you have to know the people, and he doesn't. And that's no fault of his. He just that he hasn't been there. But there are people who have been there who could be who could put together a Republican-Democrat coalition um, and get to 218. So bottom line is you better have a plan. And the, the Freedom Caucus, friends of mine, I've told them this directly, you know, it is get, push a conservative agenda, but don't commit political suicide by forcing whoever becomes speaker to, dis, to basically write the, whole, the 40 cons, real conservative members off and say, we don't ever have to talk to them. We never will talk to them because they aren't part of the governing coalition. They have to figure out how to be part of the governing coalition because that's what this is. It's a coalition of left-wing Republicans, middle Republicans, conservative people who say they're conservative Republicans and actual conservative Republicans. 
And it's a coalition between those people and it's a shaky coalition at best. And so they have to figure out how to be part of the governing coalition. Otherwise, they don't matter. And that's the, and from my perspective, I want to get stuff done like people on this call. Jamie, you were right. Now let's get stuff done. Well, you get stuff done by being part of the solution. And I, I hope and pray that the, that the Freedom Caucus plays their hand correctly right now, because if they don't, um, they're going to get dealt out of the deal. And our, and our strongest supporters for freedom will not have a voice at the table as opposed to you know, they'll be able to do one minute speeches before before the session. But apart from that, you know, they will they'll be dealt out of the game. Um, let's go. Um, yeah, Jim, Carolyn, Jim is a great guy. Um, he was our legislative year a few years back and uh, he could be our legislative year every year. He's a he's a great guy. And I've got and he's tough, tough as nails. Nice guy, but tough as nails. And that's what we need. Somebody who's tough. Um, yeah, John, tell me about it. Yeah, it's. I go on the radio. I go on the radio all the time, and, and guys will go, and the announcer will think they're being funny, and you know, I, and I laugh with them. So you're not doing a very good job, you know, in limited government. I'm sitting there going, dude, you know, we got 40 votes. You know, it's a, it's. But one thing I hope is that. Um, as the Republicans, the moderates, and the, you know, the quasi-conservatives try to figure out what to do, and as inflation continues to be a problem, that they, under, that they figure it out, that government spending is one of the biggest contributors to inflation, and that they start cutting the size and scope of government, rolling back the Biden increases in the regular spending in government. Because unless they roll back those increases, if they allow the government to expand from a new baseline that's been dramatically increased, there's really no pathway. There's no pathway to get this thing under control. You know, one of the things that happened in 2013, 2014, um, that, caused a, that caused a real change, really cut the budget, was something called sequester was put into place um, by Paul Ryan and uh, on a bipartisan basis with uh, Patty Murray from Washington State, um, Democrat, and they put sequester in place. What sequester did is it basically uh, flatlined incre spending increases on defense and on the on the um, both the guns and the butter side of the equation. And what we saw was um, our our deficit went down, and the spending uh, kind of was flatlined for three years. And in flatlining the spending for three years, revenues kept increasing. And as a result, the budget, the budget deficit went down by virtue of just not increasing the budget for a three-year period. That worked. Um, whether this Congress will go with the sequester and be able to agree with the sequester um, over with the, with the Senate sides uh, remains to be seen. Um, the defense hawks really didn't like the sequester they because it, it's basically capped the increases in spending on the defense budget and created a lot of long-term challenges in terms of, because they, they buy things over like 10 year basis. And so there were some challenges that existed because of that. Um, but those are, but we got a bigger challenge when we're, when we have an inflation rate, that's, you know, seven to 
and the value of our dollars that we have in our pockets are going down 10% every single year. That's a bigger problem um, that has to be dealt with because uh, that means, because it effectively means the price of building that ship that was a billion dollars is now a billion one because 10% inflation in one year. And then the next year is another you know, $100 billion increase. Next year is another $100 billion increase. So unless we get inflation, the costs under control, we are trapped in a, in a cycle of increased spending that the only way you break it is by breaking it. And I don't know the Republicans will have the votes to do that because they don't have the majority, a large enough majority. But for all those people who are inflation hawks like Mr. Santos, that's really the only way he's going to be able to do anything. And, and if his idea is to send out checks to everybody to make up for um, make up for inflation, that's how we got into this mess. So we'll have to we'll have to see how guys like uh, Representative Santos plan on dealing with inflation, because the only real way he can deal with inflation in Congress is to control the purse strings. And that is something both sides of the party, both sides of the aisle have a problem with because both sides of the aisle really like spending your money. Um, let's see here. Republicans better show us results, otherwise they're dooming their careers in the party itself. Try to smoke and mirrors BS. Brett, you know, I, I'm as frustrated as you are. I'm going to just tell you, though, we had a chance to do great things, even and we didn't win the elections. You know, we won. We won a bare majority in the House. Um, hopefully, we'll have two twenty-one. And heck, Lauren Boebert, who's in one of the most conservative districts in the nation, is sitting there with a thousand point, thousand vote lead, uh, trying to uh, trying to uh, cure ballots that were mailed in that were votes for her that the people didn't sign the sign the ballot right or were rejected for one reason or the other. And so she's desperately trying to cure them. Her opponents, you know, they've got a whole machine out in Colorado to cure ballots and to do that kind of stuff. And what we learned is we have to do, Republicans have to do elections differently. We can't just spend billions and hundreds of millions of dollars on ads and expect to win. We have to spend more time focusing on identifying our voters, convicting our voters in terms of the need for them to vote, and then doing everything possible to get them to vote and increase the increase the votes amongst the low propensity voters. That's a program ALG has been working on for years. We succeeded in taking over the Virginia House of Delegates. Um, everyone wants to talk about Glenn Youngkin. In fact, the matter is Glenn Youngkin had very little to do with that. We were working in 20 House districts, 22 House districts actually, in two years ago um, for a full year, doing grassroots, doing voter contact, and we won, and we had to pick up five for the Democrats to, for the Republicans to pick control in the House of Delegates, and we got seven. And we were the only people working district by district, hand fighting in those districts. And we also did voter integrity stuff in those districts that was significant. And that is why the, Repo the Republicans took control of the House of Delegates. Uh, and Glenn Youngkin was a beneficiary of that, the governor, current governor of Virginia. Uh, he was a beneficiary of that. But the fact of the matter is, the Republican operatives in the state, there aren't there are people who are here, official party operatives, a week before the election said they weren't going to take control of the House of Delegates. 
they didn't believe it happened because they didn't see, they didn't know what was actually happening or the work we were doing to get votes out. That's what we have to replicate across this country. We have to replicate that in states that are electoral college states that matter. It, and we have to replicate it in districts and congressional districts and Senate and seats from places where Senate seats are up. So we're not seeing there three weeks later curing ballots in a 60 in a district that the Republicans should win 60-40, trying because of a because of mail-in ballot campaigns that we weren't prepared to match. And until we start doing this right, until we start actually playing the electoral game and the way it's played in the 21st century as played as opposed to the way it was played in the 20th century, until we start doing that, well, freedom's in jeopardy. And that's one of the things we're going to be working on from ALG is trying to make certain that we get a majority, and not just a majority of people of George Santos's, but a majority of people who want to fight for freedom and want to fight for truth and honor, want to fight for government accountability, and want to and want to actually take on the problems that are besetting this nation, and not just roll over and play dead and collect their salaries. And that's what we're going to be doing the next two years. And what we're going to be dedicated to the next two years of, you know, and it's up to fundraising, truthfully. It's, it's up to how much money I can raise to get that done. And it's, uh, and I'm working on that now. So, but I did want to answer your question, Brett, and, and give it and talk about it a little bit. Um, I'm going to take one more on Trump. Uh, Judith, uh, thank you for jumping in, seconding how this media and government have been to Trump and the whole world is ashamed of just lacking human decency. The left is crazy, okay? They are so Trump obsessed that it's it's embarrassing. Um, Donald Trump gave a very presidential speech in Mar-a-Lago the other day. And one of the things I've said all along is you don't win elections looking in a rear view mirror. You look like win elections by looking forward. And I think he understands that the fight for America is a fight, is a fight that isn't a rear view. You don't forget what's happened because you have to fix it, but you better have a vision for where you're going to take the country. And Donald Trump is more in touch with what actual people in the United States care about than any other politician on the right, for certain, and I think any politician in America. And so he's the one guy who, who can build that coalition that of voters who transcend Republican, Independent, Democrat into being American. And so we'll see what happens uh, in, in this election, but it is a, you know, and Donald Trump, you know, he's, he's got a, He's got big negatives. He's taken a beating for six years. So, you know, one of the things that he has to do is he has to prove to Americans that he's um, that he's going that he is the answer to the problems, and not just an argument waiting to happen. But right now, he's the guy who has the who has the bully pulpit. He's the guy who has the the ability to articulate the problems in the country and to have the vision to solve them. You know, I, Ron DeSantis is a, would be a great candidate. There's a number of people who have, who have potential as candidates, 
but only one person's been president. Only one person's been in the Oval Office. And so while he was an outsider before, he's ironically an outsider still, but an outsider with a knowledge of the actual powers of the president, the things they can do. And I don't think if he was elected, he will make the same mistakes, personnel mistakes that he made up front in his uh, in the first in the first term. Um, so but we'll see. We're not endorsing any candidate right now. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But just remember, uh, we were the, the group that really launched Donald Trump's campaign um, as we're fighting against uh, the Obama administration and their attempt to, and the Republicans for that matter, and their attempt to uh, pass the, the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership Treaty. We were at the forefront of that. Um, I raised the money and paid for a radio ad featuring Donald Trump, urging that that be opposed. And Donald Trump's voice in that ad changed the dynamic in the New Hampshire primary because it, 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 when we, before we launched it, we had about three Republicans who were quasi on our side of the 16 Republicans running for, for president. And after we ran it for three weeks, um, I, we had nine commit to us that they were, um, <coughs> that they were at least, they were on our side in terms of having a strong concern and, and against fast tracking that uh, treaty. Um, and that was what we were, the legislation we were fighting against. So Donald Trump played a huge role in that. We, you know, we introduced him politically to the people in New Hampshire, people in South Carolina, people across the country um, through an aggressive radio advertising campaign on that subject. And we won that. Donald Trump rescinded our involvement in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And, it's, and so it was a, a massive victory for the sovereignty of this nation. And it was Donald Trump who did it. But it was people like Americans for Limited Government that are fighting our asses off to make certain that America was still America. And that's, and that's the thing that we all can do together. In the next two years, just commit that we're gonna fight every inch, every day to try to hold the Republicans accountable and the Democrats accountable and the Biden administration accountable and we're going to talk to our neighbors. We're not just going to talk to ourselves. We're going to talk to others. We're going to explain to them what's going on. We're going to educate them. We're going to create a, a majority unlike anybody seen in this country before around the concept that America matters, that parents matter, that our freedom matters, and the government works for us. We don't work for them. I hope that you guys will join us. I hope that you will come and be part of Americans for Limited Government. I hope that you'll subscribe to this channel, whichever one you're watching this on. I hope that you'll like our Facebook page. And I think you'll, sh I hope you'll share this with everybody on your Facebook page because folks, you are the army. Don't look around and say, who's gonna do it? It's gotta be you and it's gotta be us. And we can't back away from the challenges we face no matter how hard or difficult they may seem. With that, I'm going to close out. I appreciate you all listening. appreciate you all being on. And uh, let's go kick some butt.